All right, well, let's, uh, let's go ahead and open up with a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word tonight. Your word is precious, it is glorious, and it reveals amazing truth, truth about you, about us, and about our, our lives in this world, how we are to, to remain faithful, how we are to obey you and love you in the midst of a world filled with sin. As we approach the text this evening, in these chapters that are, are full of imagery, which is, is confusing and, and also rich and important, would you help us by your spirit to understand the message that you have for us? Would we respond rightly? Would you help us, Lord, to to, to obey and to respond and to live lives that are, that are impacted by the truths revealed uh, in these passages. We thank you for your word. We pray in the name of the slain lamb, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Uh, well, I hope you are all doing well. I hope you all were able to uh, read the passage for this week. We have... Uh, Quite a, quite a large section in chapters 17 and 18 in the first part of 19. Uh, we won't be able to go verse by verse through it all. We won't, uh, we won't be able to even hit um, the majority of it. I want to give kind of a bigger picture view on some of, these, uh, some of these concepts, and there's some important things here that I will want to point out, and then we can... Um, talk some more, uh, some more details and specifics, but uh, we'll begin by, by looking at kind of a, a broad overview, um, especially at some of the imagery and the, the symbolism that is, is being used. Um, so if we, look, if we look here at the beginning of, of chapter 17, what, what we have as we, we start really is um, th- this concept I brought up before of, uh, of recapitulation, where John kind of takes the same um, the, the same truth and spins it a different way. He uh, attacks the same um, idea from a different angle. So as we saw in the, the series of judgments, we saw the, uh, the seals and then the trumpets and then the bowls. Uh, we, we noticed that in um, the seventh of each of those, the seventh one in each series, it was always the climactic final day of the Lord, the return of Jesus and uh, the judgment of uh, of sin and uh, the establishment of his kingdom. Um, so the seventh seal, trumpet, and bowl, it, it all brought us to the, the climax, uh, the return of Christ. And so we've just finished now the bowls. We just finished the seventh bowl, which had, uh, again, the, the climax of history. History has ended. And now, John, um, as he, he does, he, he circles back around and he's going to now take a different angle, he recapitulates um, and and what he's going to do in these chapters is show us the the end of history by considering the the fall of Babylon, the great harlot as um, is is explained in this text. And so this is going to be about the final judgment of of Babylon, um, about the the harlot. Um, He he kind of just will will now take another angle and um, reiterate some of the same things, but fill out the, the picture for us. 
And so as we, we get into chapter 17, we um, have one of the seven angels who had one of the seven bowls and poured it out. Uh, and he's going to show John um, the judgment of the great prostitute who's seated on many waters, uh, with whom the kings of the earth had committed sexual immorality. She's drunk uh, with the wine of, of uh, sexual immorality. And John is carried away in the spirit to, uh, to see this vision. Uh, the woman is seated on a beast. She's arrayed in purple and scarlet. And we get this, um, this quite honestly terrifying picture of, of this, uh, this vision that, that John sees. And so um, we can tackle it head on. But I thought it would be, be helpful to set us up for the, the entirety of this section by... Uh, rehashing a couple of a couple of points and also introducing some new ones, so then we get to Revelation and we're we're prepared to uh, to, to interpret the symbolism. So what I wanted to start with is uh, a, a biblical theology of Babylon in the Bible. Um, and first, I want to define biblical theology. Um, you might not be familiar with the term. Maybe if you you hear biblical theology. A way it can be used is, is using biblical as, as like an adjective of, of your theology. And so someone has biblical theology and someone has unbiblical theology. That might be a way that uh, you hear it used. I'm not using it here in that sense. I'm using it in a more uh, specific sense. And so I want to define that for you. Um, it's a term that is, is used in, um, in scholarship and whatever. But I, I think it's just also helpful uh, for us to be thinking about this concept of, of biblical theology. It's very important and um, can be compared to other types of theology like systematic theology or historical theology. Um, and so focusing on biblical theology, here's a definition that I wrote uh, for a class that I took on biblical theology. I'm going to warn you, it's super long. It's probably going to seem unhelpful. Then I'm going to give you a short version. It's condensed and nice. Uh, in fact, I already uh, condensed um, my, my definition. I removed a few sentences and removed some words. So it was a long definition. Um, but biblical theology, or BT, is the study, reflection, and presentation of the theological witness of the Bible which seeks to analyze and organize these truths around the categories and terms that Scripture itself provides, rather than imposing foreign structures and categories on the text. Biblical theology may be applied to studies which focus on the theology of a particular passage, book, canonical section, literary genre, or biblical author. On a larger scale, the term may be applied to studies which concentrate on the canon, the entire Bible, either the Old Testament, New Testament, or both. Moreover, biblical theology may apply to tracing a theme or term through any one of the aforementioned sections or throughout the entire Bible. Often, the goal of biblical theology relates to dealing with the relationship between the Old and New Testament or discerning the unity and diversity of Scripture, paying close attention to the overarching narrative the entire Bible, while not forsaking the discrete and diverse theological witnesses of the text. Super long, super, super complex. Hopefully, all the points, so. some of those things make sense. And now I'll show you my professor's super short, condensed definition. 
Biblical theology studies the main ideas of the Bible following the Bible's own terms and categories of thought. Yeah, and so that one probably is a lot more helpful. The, the big thing uh, and that you'll notice, it's expanded in my definition, and, but it's still present in uh, my professors, uh, is that biblical theology is going to study um, the, the, the theology of the Bible or the, the main ideas and points of the Bible on the text's own terms. And so um, in contrast to systematic theology, uh, or sometimes called dogmatic theology, but systematic theology is going to have um, structures and questions and categories that are from outside the text that they are then going to use to organize what the Bible teaches. And it's not that that's wrong. For instance, like the Trinity, which isn't, um, which isn't, there's no verse that mentions the word Trinity, yet it's a helpful category for thinking about God and it's something that the scripture reveals. And so you could take the category of Trinity and, and collect all the verses in the Bible that witness to the Trinity, and that's systematic theology. Biblical theology is, is tracing themes and patterns and uh, important, important um, points throughout um, a book or uh, an author. You could talk about the theology of John or the theology of Paul or of Isaiah um, or through maybe the entire Old Testament or the entire New Testament or the entire Bible um, through a, a section of scripture uh, like the, the Gospels. You could talk about a, th a theology of the Gospels. And so it's going to be tracing uh, themes and tracing the, the theological emphasis of the text. And uh, it, it's not going to be coming to the text with categories or with um, with questions or, or structures that are outside of the text. It's going to let the text itself drive what you're doing. Um, and so both, of, both types of theology, biblical and systematic, are needed. Um, systematic theology needs to be driven by biblical theology where we are, are following what the text is saying and, and what the text is emphasizing and then drawing conclusions about what the entire uh, scriptures teach, um, and there are important questions in terms of ethics or morality uh, that, that need to be answered, you know, things like, a, like abortion or something like that. That's, we're at, is abortion okay? It's a question that we're asking outside of the text. It's not, it's not a question that any biblical author asks. It doesn't mean it's a bad question. It's a very important question, but it's different than... Um, than letting the text uh, drive our, our questions and emphasize things. And so d does, that, does that make sense? Does that seem pretty clear? So what Hopefully. you're doing is we're doing systematic theology. Uh, Going from just reading it in the order that it's written, right? That, that would be biblical theology because oh. we're reading it um, as it is presented. We're reading it on its own terms. Okay. Um, and we are, we are not coming to it with, with questions that are outside of the text. We're letting the text drive uh, our emphasis. We're going to emphasize what the text em emphasize and uh, point out themes, or, or it can also be tracing themes throughout the entire Bible, throughout books, um, and that's actually what we're going to be doing here tonight with, 
with Babylon. Um, but the, the, the core is, is, again, that it's on uh, the Bible's own terms, and it's, it's going to be um, reflecting on the, the main ideas and themes and emphases um, that, that tie together the Bible in um, certain sections or within the, the whole Bible. Uh, you'll see that um, a, a big, and I mentioned it in my definition, a big um, focus in biblical theology is uh, the unity of the entire Bible and tracing the story of the entire Bible um, or tracing themes throughout the entire Bible, trying to pinpoint what, what at its core ties the entire Bible together. Some people, um, especially for the Old Testament, you, you might argue that, um, that, that the concept of covenants ties together the entire Old Testament. Um, I'm not saying that's right or wrong, that's, but some people, that's an example of trying to find um, something that unifies the Bible or looking at the Old and New Testament and how they connect. Um, that's biblical theology as opposed to uh, organizing and presenting and uh, asking questions of the text to present uh, the truth of the Bible in our own context. That is systematic theology. If you look at the Old Testament without the New Testament, it'd be really easy to argue a whole bunch of different things tied together. Yeah. Until you until you until you put the New Testament on top of it. And, well, to the Christian mind, it should become relatively obvious that Christ ties it all together. <laughs> Sherry, I'll let, uh, Sherry also knows a lot about this, so I'll let her. No, I was just going to no, ask, yeah. ask if it would be helpful. I, we've already, if this question is helpful, we've already kind of touched on some kinds of biblical theology as we've been going through Revelation, but um, specifically the one that comes to my mind is just the, the Exodus um, motif, like just the whole thing about people being redeemed, and we've seen imagery of that, of Mount Sinai, and all those kinds of things, and the exile and all that. So Yeah, um, and I've been doing biblical theology and teaching biblical theology the entire time. I haven't just, I just haven't been calling it that. Um, one of the things that I have right now slated for kind of ending our entire uh, class together is um, our, our final week is going through kind of biblical theological themes in Revelation and talking some more about it because biblical theology is super important and um, it's, it's practical. It's not, it's not just a scholarly pursuit because it's, it's really about the unity of the Bible and tying the Bible together as I've studied um, some of these things, it's it, it's been what has convinced me more than anything of um, the the divine nature of Scripture. As I see connections between Genesis and Revelation and all over the Old Testament and all these things, that I I'm just convinced. Like that there's no way that this can be a human product. It has to be divine. Um, and so we, we have themes like the Exodus, things that are, are uh, developed and brought out, um, the, the way that the New Testament uses the Old, and even the way that the Old Testament uses the Old Testament. You see throughout the development of the Old Testament ways that um, themes and concepts and promises are being uh, reflected on and developed. And so um, it's super important, and we'll scratch the surface tonight with, with one theme that uh, is, is especially relevant for Revelation and relevant for our text uh, tonight. So is there any, any questions before we, we dive into that? Oh,
every Bible study that I've been to, perhaps I've been lucky, but every Bible study I've been to has been based in biblical theology. Yeah. Trying to figure out what the word is saying. Yeah. You know, um, uh, our Bible study on Thursdays, um, other Bible studies I've been to, I've been to half a dozen different ones since I've been attending here. Yeah. Um, they came and went. <laughs> Small groups used to be really big for a while, and, and I've attended probably half a dozen different small groups. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so let's, let's go ahead and, and get in. Uh, a lot of this, especially this particular theme, is from um, some of my professor's material, which I'm using his permission, but uh, I want to give him a shout out there. Um, so when we, when we think about Babylon, um, which is mentioned in Revelation, probably a lot of our first thoughts go to uh, Babylon, the historical city, which is, is mentioned in the Bible. So Babylon has its roots in uh, Genesis 10 as a historical city built by Nimrod, who was one of the descendants of Ham, who was one of, uh, one of Noah's sons. Um, Ham also uh, was the, the father, um, the ancestor of um, of the Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Philistines, and uh, many other nations. And so uh, one of the descendants of Noah's sons built uh, Babylon. His name is Nimrod. It's in Genesis 10. So it's mentioned. And then in the next chapter, uh, we, we have the narrative of the Tower of Babylon. And maybe you've never heard it called the Tower of Babylon. You've heard it called the Tower of Babel. Um, it's actually the same exact word in, in Hebrew, Babel, Babylon. It's, it's the same place. It's the same word. And so um, in Genesis 11, we read the story of the Tower of Babel, the Tower of Babylon. Um, Genesis 11:4, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So there's this pursuit of these people who um, gather together and they want to uh, build this tower. They want to make a name for themselves. And um, it's a total side note, but a, a really interesting biblical theological study in um, the Old Testament, but especially um, Genesis and Exodus, is uh, the theme of the giving of names. Uh, it was something that I studied for a project for um, this the class with this professor. and. Um, you have God giving names and people giving names and then you have people wanting to name themselves and it's clearly not a good thing and it ends disastrously um, but that's a, another, another topic um, and so they want to build this tower and so God as a, consequence, as a consequence he confuses their language the word in Hebrew is balal he balals their language, and he disperses them over the land. And therefore, it says it is called Babel, 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 for there Yahweh confused Balal, the language. And so, uh, Sherry's the only one who can read Hebrew, but um, you can see if you just look at the weird looking characters, they look almost the same. There's one letter that's different. And uh, the one letter is the, that's flipped is a B or an L. So the first one is um, Babel and uh, Balal. And so there's kind of this play on words um, that, that's 
it's interesting and it's one of the um, characteristics of names that are given in uh, the Old Testament is there's some connection to the event or what happened. And so God confuses them and uh, they call the place Babel. Um, and then that same word, Babel, is what throughout the rest of the Old Testament, whenever you read Babylon, it's that word, it's Babel. It's not any different, it's just that same word. Is there a real city in Iraq, Babylon? Because Saddam Hussein was going to re revive Babylon. Uh, there could be. I, I mean, I no clue. Yeah. Um, and so here we have Babylon established. And uh, the, the key, though, that I'm trying to point out is that Babel and Babylon, they're the same. Um, that I don't know why uh, most translations they say Babel in Genesis 11 and then Babylon everywhere else. Some translations don't. Um, but anyway. Uh, and so another biblical theological theme that just pointing out how cool it is and how uh, significant it is. Um, when you get to Acts 2 and Pentecost, you have the reversal of Babel because you have the tongues of fire that come down, people from all different nations uh, in different languages, and they come and they speak one language. You have the reversal of Babel. It's a cool, um, cool theme. But anyway, um, Genesis 11, Tower of Babylon. That makes sense. Uh, and so then Babylon, as we keep reading in uh, the Old Testament, it's the historical city and nation uh, that was chosen by God to carry Judah into a 70-year captivity. We read about that in 2 Kings and in Jeremiah. Uh, it's ruled by King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, they destroyed Jer uh, Jerusalem and the temple, and they take, uh, they take survivors captive to Babylon. So Babylon then becomes a place of exile and alienation from the land. Uh, Psalm 137 is a reflection on uh, sitting in exile um, all throughout Jeremiah. Um, Passim means all throughout. Uh, all throughout Jeremiah, it's a place of alienation and exile from the land. Um, the Israelites are called to submit to Babylon, to the historical city of Babylon in Jeremiah as God's punishment against them. Uh, he, he tells them that um, they are going to be punished and so they need to submit to them. Uh, do not resist them. And later, Babylon, uh, which is a very wicked city and, and the book of Habakkuk explores this. Habakkuk asking, how, how, uh, how long, O oh Lord? Why aren't you judging them? Why would you, you use this wicked nation? Uh, and God, in his time, will destroy and judge Babylon for their wickedness. We see this also in Isaiah 13 and 14 and in Jeremiah. And so uh, Babylon is a historical place. It's a real place. And, and that's probably the part that we all, all get. Um, we have also, though, in the Old Testament and then going into the New Testament, is Babylon being used uh, as, as a figure or a, a symbol. Here's a rendition of Revelation 18, um, part of our text today. I thought I'd throw up there. But um, essentially, Babylon becomes representative of, of all of the Gentile people, the, the worst Gentile people. Babylon, all nations, all Gentiles, they will 
eventually recognize and submit to Yahweh's rule. He said in Psalm 87, Daniel 4. Uh, but more applicable for us in, in our text is, is that Babylon becomes representative of worldwide spiritual adultery and idolatry. Um, Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth, as we read in our text today, um, it, it begins to stand for a, a global commercial system autonomous from God, which is overthrown by the Messiah in uh, this, this big section in Revelation. Um, and so what, what happens is this historical city Babylon, is, as this theme develops, um, it's this evil, wicked city. And you see a similar thing happen with Egypt. Um, but it, it becomes really like the, the archetype for, uh, for wicked nations and for nations and peoples who stand against God, um, for those who oppose the will of God. And, um, and so as a historical and real nation, it was uh, a nation who, who um, God used for, uh, for the judgment of um, the sin of his people, but he judged them um, even more because of their extreme wickedness. And, and so Babylon stands for, uh, for the totality of people against, against God, against God and his ways. And that is what, um, what John is going to pick up on in Revelation and start doing. And as we'll see here, he's not going to be talking about the literal specific city of Babylon um, and it's not that this is going to be a, a literal city in the, the Middle East that is rebuilt um, actually Babylon the historical Babylon was destroyed and, and uh, prophesied, prophesied that it would never be rebuilt and it has not been um, rebuilt or, or re regained um, power or, or authority and so in this text John is going to start using Babylon as, um, as the this, this symbol for, um, for the, really the ungodly world system, for, um, for the, the, the totality of people against God. And uh, we'll start to see that. I thought it would be, be helpful though to, to give us that groundwork and at least see how uh, we get there from the, the, the scriptures, how it progresses in, in terms of what it starts to stand for. And then uh, when we get to Revelation, how John is going to be using it. And so does, does that make sense so far? Just uh, where we're at? Okay. And so then as we get into uh, to these, uh, these couple of chapters when Babylon becomes, um, Babylon becomes the, the, the focus, um, again, it's not about... Uh, a, a specific city. It's about the, the ungodly world system that is against the Lord. It is about uh, unbelievers and people who are, who are contrary to uh, the will of God, contrary to his people. They are against the things of God. And uh, uh, that's what we'll, we'll see is receiving judgment in these texts. It's not just one city receiving judgment. It is um, all ungodliness, all wickedness being, being judged. And so uh, in these chapters we have 
two women, really, as we were introduced to a, a second woman in chapter 19, and that is the bride of the Lamb. Uh, and so this, this section could be titled uh, the, the Tale of Two Cities or the Tale of, of Two Women, um, the Harlot and the Bride, the, the New Jerusalem, and Babylon. Uh, just as the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, the unholy trinity, which I talked about a couple of weeks ago, they made a mockery of the true God. The harlot of Babylon here makes a mockery of the bride of Christ. In this section, the two are portrayed as polar opposites. They could not be more different from one another, uh, similar to in the book of Proverbs, you have Lady Folly and Lady Wisdom, and they are the, the uh, exact op- opposites of one another. I think that John is picking up on this motif, and he draws a clear line between the people of God and those who uh, are the people of the beast. John's writings um, throughout the New Testament, his gospel, his uh, epistles, and uh, the apocalypse, they're, they're very polarized. He's extremely black and white. So We've talked about this a bit already in Revelation. You're either um, for the lamb or you're for the dragon. You're either uh, sealed by God or you have the mark of the beast. Uh, You either are uh, one who follows the lamb wherever he goes and your dwelling is in heaven or you are uh, an earth dweller, an unbeliever. Um, You are either with the harlot Babylon or you are with the bride of Christ. And so there's uh, this clear distinction here. And... uh, Bible's doing that all the time too. Like if mm-hmm. we're talking biblical theology, like Psalms, like we study, like you're always the wicked and the righteous, and you know. Yeah, Psalm one, the righteous one, the all, and all the way through the book, or the seed of the two lines, like the Bible's always doing mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, as the the harlot, she is really a symbolic figure representing all of those who who follow the dragon, uh, those who who follow the beast. Um, because of this, we can take the description of unbelievers throughout the book and combine it with John's description of the harlot here in these chapters, and it gives us a holistic picture of human beings who rebel against God. In this section, the whole host of human beings who reject Christ as their king are symbolically represented as a prostitute, as a woman who, who, who prostitutes herself to the beast, This should bring to mind for us the frequent Old Testament passages where um, foreign nations and Israel itself are described as as, as whores who who have prostituted themselves to false gods. Think of the book of Hosea or um, Ezekiel 23 or other passages. It's a very common metaphor. Um, And again, it's it's not going to be a literal uh, prostitution or sexual immorality here. Um, though that might be a, an offshoot of it, the, 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 the center of it is idolatry. It's spiritual uh, adultery, which um, throughout the entire Bible, this metaphor is very prominent, that uh, idolatry and unfaithfulness to the covenant, um, betraying God, it is, it is portrayed as, uh, as uh, cheating on God, Whoa. as uh, adultery with uh, with. Um, with Possibly other the gods. Simplest, simplest form of that sentence would be to have anything other than God as your center. Yeah, 
Yeah. To be centered on anything but God would be to be an idolatry to God. Yeah, and so that is what uh, here the the sexual immorality is is um, is, is standing for is um, idolatry and for this spiritual adultery. Um, the name Babylon, as we we saw it, brings to mind the historic city that was one of the greatest enemies of Israel in the Old Testament. They were the ones who took Israel um, out of the land into exile. John's description here also um, ha- has connections to um, some of the depictions of Tyre and uh, Sidon and Egypt and other nations in the Old Testament, which uh, especially in the prophets are are judged. The harlot Babylon in Revelation can and should be, um, there's a quote from Matthew Emerson, the canon should be understood as a recapitulative image of all of Israel's enemies. Babylon is symbolic of every person in every kingdom that has ever and will ever oppose the rule of Yahweh. Um, Babylon is, is anyone who, who stands against uh, the Lord. And so one thing is, is we see the comparison and contrast between the two, uh, the two women in this chapter, the, the harlot and the bride. Um, there's a few things that we should, we should notice. Um, for one, their clothing. Maybe you, you picked up on that. Uh, in the, this first, uh, first chapter that we read, uh, what, is, what is the harlot wearing? How is she dressed? Yeah, scarlet. It's purple and scarlet. Sorry? Gaudy finery. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a ton of uh, gold and um, jewels and pearls. Show off clothes. Yeah, uh, and to, to, to uh, be frank, she's, she's dressed as a prostitute. Is, is how she is dressed. Uh, and as we see, her, her actions only uh, confirm that this is her occupation. In contrast, the bride, when we get to chapter 19, what does the bride wear? Voice. Yeah, wears, uh, wears white linen in 9.8. She uh, is granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And so uh, there's this, this very distinct contrast here um, in Revelation and in other parts of Scripture. Um, the, the, the white, the pure uh, linen, it represents um, sexual purity as it does elsewhere in Revelation. And again, it's not a literal sexual purity, but showing that they have abstained from idolatry and they've remained faithful to, uh, to the Lord. And so John and bringing in this, this symbolism, uh, this contrasting their, uh, their sexual purity uh, and the sexual impurity of unbelievers of Babylon, he, he makes this primarily about spiritual prostitution again, that this is, uh, keep emphasizing it because it's so central in here, that it's a spiritual um, adultery and a idolatry that is at the core of Babylon's um, sin and, and, and misdoings, and it is at the, the core of uh, the, the righteousness of um, the, the bride is that they, have, they, are, they are pure, they have um, been kept, um, kept pure from, uh, from idolatry, from spiritual adultery. Uh, second, even, even the way that uh, these, these two 
women relate to the world's political and economic powers. It puts them in stark contrast. And so the harlot is seduced by and she seduces kings and merchants in 17 and 1718 and in 183. It represents the fact that the unbelieving world and those who inhabit it are full of um, corruption. The red in her clothing and the cup that she drinks, it indicates that she persecutes the people of God. Uh, she's, she's drunk on the, the blood of the, uh, those who have been killed, the martyrs, the witnesses of Christ. Um, the saints, on the other hand, excuse me, they... Uh, they abstain from, uh, from spiritual adultery. They, their purity, it testifies to their citizenship in heaven, in the kingdom. They are oppressed and martyred at the hands of these same kings and merchants who uh, are, are seduced by the harlot. Um, and so the harlot lays with the kings and merchants while the bride lays down her life in opposition to them. There's this distinction in uh, how they relate to the, the unbelieving world. And thirdly, uh, the harlot and the bride have very different relationships with their uh, consorts. The beast, which the woman rides upon, she event it, it eventually destroys uh, his consort. It, it uh, destroys Babylon. The beast destroys Babylon, even though they were, um, they were uh, uh, committing adultery together. The lamb, on the other hand, has a pure, undefiled, eternal marriage to his bride. And so there's just a few examples of the, the contrasts that we see between these two, uh, these two cities, these two um, women. Is that, uh, did anyone else see how, see how there's that contrast, especially in the clothing? The clothing is a very, um, very clear example of um, the, the fine linen, the white uh, that the saints are wearing and the... Um, the, the purple and uh, the red that is being worn by, by the, the harlot. And so then, uh, related to the descriptions of these two women, the harlot and the bride, is the portrayal of unbelievers and unbelievers in the book. Um, Babylon, it, it does stand for uh, the, the totality of, of uh, unbelievers against the Lord, against his ways. Uh, it also is representative of just the ungodly world system and um, political, economic, religious powers. Um, and the, the bride is the, the people of God. And when we think more individually, the way that unbelievers and believers are portrayed in the book, it, it lines up with how, uh, how these two women are portrayed in these chapters. So um, the way that John depicts Babylon, the harlot, in chapters 17 and 18, is directly connected to his picture of unbelievers throughout the rest of the book. It's clear in uh, 1715, where the waters upon which the harlot is seated, upon which she, uh, she sins, they are identified as the unbelieving nations. And so in the same way that the harlot is the opposite of the bride, so the nations who follow the beast are opposites of the chosen believers who follow the lamb. Throughout Revelation, the same imagery used to contrast believers and unbelievers are picked up in these chapters. And so uh, one place that we see this clearly is within the addresses to the seven churches um, with the warnings given to Pergamum and uh, Thyatira and Sardis. 
they all contain language that mirrors the descriptions of uh, the unholy trinity, the, um, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, uh, and especially the harlot. There's a lot of the same language. So, for instance, um, John warns Pergamon against false teaching and sexual immorality and reminds the, the church of Christ's war against the enemies of Yahweh. It's uh, connected to the, the, the false prophet, the false teaching, and then sexual immorality in the harlot. Uh, to uh, Thyatira, uh, Christ warns them of uh, the woman Jezebel, the description of Jezebel, and the destruction that will come to those who follow her. It's um, so similar to how the harlot is portrayed in Revelation 17 and 18. Um, and then the warning to the church at Sardis, it reminds readers of the contrast between believers, those who have white garments, and those uh, who have soiled garments, unbelievers. In each of these contrasts, it is the church who is pure and undefiled, while unbelievers are unrepentant, sexually immoral, and soiled by their sin. John warns these three churches in particular to flee from these practices and from the rebelliousness toward Yahweh that they signify. Destruction waits for those who do not turn from their idols and turn to the living God. Um, do you see how some of those same images and those same ideas are then brought out in the descriptions of the harlot? So uh, for the churches to engage and be... Um, be dealing with false teaching and false prophecy, for them to be uh, sexually immoral, for them to um, soil their garments or to wear white garments, it's directly connected to the relationship that they have with the harlot. And uh, in these earlier chapters, he's in a, in, in a sense saying, uh, stay away from, from Babylon, from the harlot. Us and, and all that that represents. That's essentially what happened to Israel Israel before the exile. They got false prophets. They, the real prophets, they persecuted, chased out of town, killed, murdered. Yeah. And they're the ones that warned them about the exile that they never believed was going to happen. Yeah. And so uh, it's another example of these things that are, are carried throughout uh the book and ways that John ties together these, these themes and points that he's making. Does that all make sense? Um, as I've, I've, I've stated with, with Babylon and, and what it's representing, when John originally wrote this, um, the Babylon him and his readers were facing was, was most certainly the, the Roman Empire. Um, there, there may be some details and some of these uh, depictions of the harlot that um, connect with Rome. One, one scholar says, for first century readers of Revelation, John's message is clear. Making your bed with the harlot means making your bed with the Roman political and economic machine. Uh, and so for John and his readers, it's connected to uh, the oppressive empire of Rome, but the symbols are universal. The truth John is conveying is timeless. And John, I think, even knows that too. John is not limiting, uh, limiting it to Rome. Babylon does not just rep represent the Roman Empire in John's day, but it stands for the ungodly world system in its entirety, which is not bound to any point in the past or future. Um, 
one scholar, Tom Schreiner, writes this, The original historical Babylon pointed beyond itself to the city of man in general, to human culture and society insofar as it is opposed to and hates the living God. Historical Babylon no longer existed when John wrote, but the manifestations of evil in the city of man emerged in John's day in the city of Rome. Hence, those with eyes to see would realize that Babylon was revived in the city of Rome. And throughout history, Babylon has arisen again and again. So Babylon, really it stands for every human city and culture in opposition to the things of God. Any nation or city or people that sets itself up in opposition to God becomes Babylon. Ultimately, the Bible and Revelation shows us that every human kingdom eventually becomes Babylon and must be resisted. Um, in today's climate, John's critique of the harlot hits home when we think of the many economic and political practices carried out both at home and abroad and their harmful and many times oppressive consequences. As we'll see uh, throughout the chapters, one of the ways in um, which this, uh, this, um, this oppression, this idolatry, this spiritual adultery takes place is uh, in the economic, political, religious system. Um, it, it's abusive. It is, um, it is, um, it, it is ungodly. And, and so it, this is, again, very applicable for us today. Uh, there, there are Babylons that exist, uh, exist today. Babylon is, is always um, around until God finally judges it. Yeah, Diana. Well, you know, so um, Babylon would represent against Yahweh, would Jerusalem be the... Uh, it's the city of God. I know they probably still have some idolatry and, and uh, legalisms in Jerusalem, but it's the city of God. Would, God, would Jerusalem be the um, opposite of Babylon? Uh, in, in the biblical text, uh, yes. In, in Revelation, it's the new Jerusalem. Um, and the, the key here, even with Babylon, it's not about the literal city that is representing it. And so Jerusalem, if we talk about the new Jerusalem, it's not about literal Jerusalem in modern day Israel that is, resembling, resem uh, that is representing the people of God. Um, so we shouldn't try and make connections with you know, modern day, uh, trying to, to say that, oh yeah, this is, um, this is uh, representing God's people. It's, uh, the concept, how the biblical text is using, yeah, the, the new Jerusalem is uh, the people of God. It's the bride. I have a question. Um, yeah. Does 17 kind of talk about the one world religion? Is that something you're getting out of it, or is that just mixed into a part of it? Uh, what, what do you mean by the one, one well, world religion? <clears throat> I was reading some things that talked about the different kingdoms and kings and tyrants yeah. that we've seen in history that use religion mm -hmm. know, and that this world system is going to be based on that type of thing too, religion and yeah, and, and politics and economics and, and um, yeah, and, and we're in this now. Well, and we're, yeah. Future thing. What, what 
I'm wondering is, you know, like with the mark of the beast, and we haven't gotten to that, so is that something that's still going to come where there's just one belief system everyone? Uh, and so yeah, and so more. and so uh, we have, in a in a way, gotten to the mark of the beast, and, and because it's not about a uh, you know the way it's portrayed, maybe in some movies and, and novels, it's it's not about a uh, a physical mark on the head, um, and so in terms of the the people who are uh, in allegiance with Babylon, who are uh, in allegiance with the beast. Who are against God? Um, there is this, you know, uh, one religion in, in the sense of that they are, uh, you know, a people against God. Um, I don't know if it's as as uh, as you know, like developed and as systematic as you know, like having a you, know, you make everyone whatever, like Buddhist or something, like you know, some, but it, but. Um, by religion, if we're saying like yes, they're all um, submitted and in line with the um, with with the beast, then uh, then yeah, then there's uh, the sense in which the um, that is already taking place, that is already um, already already here. Like Daniel in the fiery furnace, and when, when you hear the sound of all the music, if you don't, I don't worship the leader, then we're gonna throw you in the fiery furnace. I mean, that's what it says is where where they're headed. Headed that direction before Christ comes back. Yeah, and so uh, the, the the big point again with all of this is that that Babylon is um, it, it can stand for for any and every human nation or city or people or culture that is opposed to the ways of God, um, especially ones that uh, that uh, are idolatrous and um, that. That have a uh, have a, a primary focus on um, this economic and political and religious um, system that is against God and His ways. And uh, again, in, in our own climate, this is is so relevant. And so, just if you take a minute and reflect, or or um, maybe respond, what what do you see in our in our own um, modern day, where, uh, what areas, and um, put a little bit more in here, which I've already talked about some of this. Uh, what Revelation en ends up doing is exposing the true nature of this world's ungodly political, cultural, economic, and religious system. It, it shows that they're destined for wrath and destruction. In this world, every human kingdom eventually becomes Babylon and must be resisted. So one of his purposes um, in communicating through these symbolic visions is to reorient our values and our worldviews around those of God's word and of his kingdom. Uh, and I'll get back to the question I was going to ask in just a minute. Um, but at the center of this is, is idolatry. Here's a, it's a quote from Tim Keller. It's long. It's really good. Um, he says, the secret to change is always to identify and dismantle the basic idols of the heart. Martin Luther wrote that the Ten Commandments begin with the commandment against idolatry. Why does this come first in the order? Because, he argued, the fundamental motivation behind law-breaking is idolatry. We never break the other commandments without, first breaking, uh, without breaking the first one. Why do we ever fail to love or keep promises or to live unselfishly? 
Of course, the general answer is because we are weak and sinful, but the specific answer in any actual circumstance is that there is something you feel you must have to be happy that is more important to your heart than God himself. You would not lie unless first we had made something, human approval, reputation, power over others, financial advantage, more important and valuable to our hearts than the grace and favor of God. There is no way to challenge idols without doing cultural criticism. There is no way to do cultural criticism without discerning and challenging idols. Um, idols are, are everywhere, and uh, we, we need to check ourselves for these things. And so, um, if Babylon represents the ungodly world system, how do you see the systemic idolatry of modern-day Babylons in the following areas? Politics, the media, public education, entertainment, business and finance. Does anyone have any... Um, we could talk, spend the rest of our time here. We talking. could spend the rest of our time talking about this, but what, what ways do we see that... Uh, Cultural relativism. Yeah. So basically everything's okay, everything's good, unless you've mentioned Jesus or the Bible, and then it's not okay, according to the world system, and that can apply to everything. So yeah. if you're a Christian, how do you possibly think about politics? If you're a Christian, what do you do with media? If you're a Christian, what do you do with your money? If you're a Christian, what do you watch or not watch? It kind of affects everything. It does. And, it really does. You know, Jesus said, you're either with me or you're against me. So we all, it gets very, gets very, a very crisp contrast then at that yeah. point. I think sometimes when you think of, when I read this stuff, I think of like, oh my gosh, this is so obvious, this is so dramatic, but I think, again, like I said before, I think some of this is so, so, so much more subtle than sometimes we realize. I mean, people, our culture just slowly calls what the Bible calls evil, they slowly turn it and they start to call it good. And they call what the Bible calls good, they slowly turn that and they start to call that evil. I mean, gender is just the most dramatic thing easy way to see that, yeah. right? But there's all kinds of ways in our culture that this happens. I was in a class once where the leader said that Babylon represents alluring wealth, prosperity, and that can even be Starbucks. <laughs> so, I think, oh my. <laughs> well, the emphasis on spiritual and self as opposed to, I mean, the emphasis on physical and self as opposed to uh, and glorification of self as opposed to uh, uh, giving God his glory and recognition and our spiritual glory. I just think about like what our culture celebrates. What does what our culture sometimes what do we get to cheer for? You know, it's things that are not like, oh, I respect that businessman, he's so great, he's built this big Amazon, the guy who built up, you know, Amazon, but yet he's completely unfaithful to his spouse, he's a jerk, doesn't care about people, when it really comes down to it, um, you know, you can look at someone that, like that, and people just lift him up on a pedestal, and he is just like, he's bad. So, it's just, I mean, there's just, what does our culture, I mean, you take entertainment, people who are in entertainment, and, um, you know, whether they're movie stars or musicians or whatever, their words are just completely corrupt, their lifestyles are corrupt, and yet we put them up in these pedestals and stuff. Yeah, and, and there's ways, and uh, that uh, quote hinted at at the end is about, you know, 
doing cultural criticism, uh, this cultural analysis, and, and analyzing our own idols and these things that, ways that we have been influenced by, by Babylon, by the world system, and we haven't even noticed it. Ways that we have bought into uh, to these things, and, and um, I mean, we see that in the church today with, with embracing some of these things that you mentioned, and um, and again, as Revelation gives us this very black and white picture, though the uh, the churches that um, that make their bed with Babylon, so to speak, they uh, they forfeit their lampstand. They uh, their lampstand is snuffed out, and it says uh, actually in chapter eight that they will uh, will will be judged and share in her plagues. Um, that's why in, in 8.4, 8, uh, the, the, the voice from heaven calls out, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Uh, we are to be completely devoted to God and to the Lamb um, as the bride of Christ. We're not to, uh, to, to make our bed with Babylon. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's, not a, uh, it's not a call to some segregated cultish society where it's just only us Christians and no contact with the world uh, or with unbelievers, but the, the point is that unbeliever, uh, that believers, sorry, we're not to th- just throw in our lot with, uh, with the world, with those who have forsaken the true and living God. Um, believers are to separate from the world, not by withdrawing from it, but by living pure and holy lives in God's sight. We are to be in the world as Jesus taught us, but not of the world. If we belong to the Babylons of the world, we will not escape the just judgment of God. And so it's the call for, uh, for us as uh, the, the church to, uh, to check our own hearts and our own, uh, our own uh, lives and Part of John's goal in this book, part of this purpose is to have there in the last bullet is, is so that our thoughts and our imaginations and our desires and our, uh, our worldviews, all of it would be reshaped and brought in line with the word of God and with the kingdom of God rather than uh, with the kingdoms of the world. That is uh, the goal of, um, one of the goals of Revelation, one of the reasons that we have this intense um, imagery and these, uh, these judgments is uh, to push us in the right direction, uh, to pu- uh, push us out of, of any um, compromise that we might be, be in, is to point out the, the ungodly nature of um, the world's systems and to, to show that they will be judged. And uh, so that's uh, just on, on a big level without even getting into um, a lot of the details in the text. Uh, that is, I think, one of the main focuses of this, this section uh, today with, with this emphasis on Babylon. Um, and so, now that we've kind of got a big picture, we can spend a little bit more time on some of the details. Did anyone have any questions or just reflections or thoughts on kind of that big picture and um, the, the concept that, that Babylon is, uh, is any nation in any, any day and age that is, is contrary to God and um, the, the call, the, the ways that, 
that we are called to be separate, um, the ways in which we are to, to not partake in this. And um, again, it's, it's, it's so relevant for us today. There are uh, just in, in um, business and finance and our economics, there's way, what are there, are there ways that we have been influenced by the world, by um, Babylon, who one of their, her, her characteristics is this, um, is this really selfish and self-glorifying um, pride and idolatry. Um, do our business practices reflect that or uh, our politics um, without getting too political or saying any names there, you know, there are, there are political candidates and people who uh, clearly are, support and endorse and stand contrary to uh, the kingdom of God. And are we, are we uh, making our beds with the, uh, the Babylon of, um, Babylons of our, our own country even? Um, there's ways that as Christians, you know, we are, um, as Christians in America, we are American and we have um, some amazing privileges and, and things that we should be thankful for. Um, and yet we can uh, forget that our citizenship is in heaven and that uh, we are citizens of the kingdom of God and um, that, uh, you know, the, the USA is not equivalent to the kingdom of, of God. And, and so how do we, uh, how, how are we compromising by our, uh, by, by the way that we, uh, way that we live politically or economically or um, in, in our own religious climate. So um, that's one of the ways that, again, this book is so relevant for us today. It's not just about the far future um, because this is right now. This is, is stuff that is, is, is right now that is present uh, in our very own day and age that has been present um, from, uh, from when Babylon was a historical city and will be present until Jesus returns and, and judges all un, ungodliness. And so it's uh, something that we can be gleaning from and measuring ourselves against. Are we, uh, are we in Christ? Are we, uh, are we following the Lamb and, and not compromising, not laying down with uh, the, the ungodly world system? So. Yeah, something that we came across was part order to come out of this. Yeah. Was going back and looking at Sodom and Gomorrah when Lot Yeah, and there's actually... Uh, it's interesting you know that there's also um, another um, another probably illusion there in that next verse verse 5 for her sins are heaped as high as heaven um, that's the same language it uses of the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah that they are have reached as high as heaven um, yeah so that's an interesting note I think for me it was like the, I think it's the last slide that you had up there in that line about um, what the Bible is doing and reorienting us like that would just be for me what I would make bold and highlight and italicize because I think um, especially the part about kingdom because when you're talking about the earthly kingdom and every human one will be is Babylon or will be um, just I think a lot of times I we think about being Christians, or I think about like I'm a Christian, but I don't often like truly have this like real life. I don't know even how to say it, but I don't have this the reality of living in the kingdom of God already. I 
see myself as a Christian, but I see myself as just a Christian in the world, as opposed to seeing myself as a citizen of a kingdom that is a now kingdom that is coming in full. And if I saw myself more as a citizen of a kingdom, I think I would see myself not as a part of the rest of those kingdoms. That's something I think we all wrestle wrestle with, I've wrestled yeah. with it too. And I've always thought of you as a kingdom citizen. Um, <laughs> actually, both of you, because of your work in the church. It's so difficult nowadays to live. And the way you're so bombarded present by media, music, commercials on TV, even if you're watching Christian television, you know some of the commercials are like, you know, and Tells you something right there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And just, you're just constantly bombarded. You have to make an active choice to block that stuff off, or otherwise, you, it's a subliminal message that keeps playing constantly in your ear. Yeah, yeah. And as Sherry was uh, saying, it's. I mean, um, the the big thing, and we talked about this earlier um, in our in our study, is the the already not yet nature of the kingdom of God and. Um, there's aspects of the kingdom of God that are already, and there's things that are not yet, that were, are yet to be. Um, and you know, Revelation is very clear about our citizenship. Even those of us still on the earth, and whether we're you know, facing persecution or whatever, our, our citizenship is in heaven. Uh, and uh, in, in chapter 1, um, he has made us a kingdom and priests. Uh, and so we are a kingdom and priests. I've been reading this um, book recently. I'm going through it with uh, Pastor Gary, um, and it's, it's a great book. But one of the things that he's, uh, this author has been talking about, is um, developing our imaginations and having our imaginations being. Um, he he calls them uh, evangelical, meaning uh, gospel. Uh, uh, evangelical is, is good news or gospel. Uh, our, our imaginations are gospel saturated and eschatological, they're future focused, uh, looking forward to the promises to come. And um, he talks about our imagination. And, and when, we, when we think about imagination, we usually think about um, things that are, are not real, that we're wishing were real and we're thinking about uh, and we're kind of dreaming about. Um, but he flips that and says, no, our, our imagination is more about uh, visualizing and, uh, and um, placing ourselves in the reality that is it, that is in Christ, um, as we live in a sinful world, and we are to how we are how are we to believe that we are a kingdom of God and that that we are our saints? Um, it is with what he calls this uh, eschatological imagination, with the eyes of our our heart being um, being shaped by Scripture. Uh, Hebrews, Hebrews 11 talks about uh, faith being the conviction of things not yet seen, and so uh, our imagination, as, as we as we picture uh, these realities, as we um, live these realities, it becomes uh, they, they become our reality, and we live into them. Um, and, and it's how how we live into these things that are are already and not yet. And he, he said one quote that. There's one quote that he said that really stuck out, stuck out to me, and he said, um, it takes fully formed, uh, gospel-centered, eschatological imagination to look at a sinner and see a saint. Um, 
and and it's so true like it, it you know it, it it takes us being saturated with the truth of scripture and in our hearts believing and uh, and and hoping and, and looking forward to these things to to look around at the church to look at ourselves and um, in the midst of everything in this world to, to hold and cherish these promises that are given to us in Christ. Um, Let me talk about imagination. Something uh, a pastor I listen to, he's dead now, but I listen to him every once in a while on the radio. Um, explained, was explained, spent several sermons explaining that God lives in actual reality. What we perceive as reality is something God imagined and created. So basically we're living in God's imagination. <laughs> um, our reality is something that God imagined and created. And that's, that, that's something that you don't want to spend a whole lot of time contemplating. I don't think. <laughs> but, uh, I just think that whole concept of re-imaging the world in our own hearts and minds based on what God's word says is true is so important. And that's why God tells us that we need this word over and over in our hearts and minds because there's, that's the only way that we can re-image what we see around us to what is actually true. Yeah, this is, this is the true story of, of all of history, um, of our lives, of the future, of the past. Uh, and there are so many other stories and uh, worldviews and paradigms that are competing and trying to sell, sell us that they, are, that they are true. And only God's word provides us with uh, reality, um, with um, the, the, the spectacles to see clearly uh, things as they are in Christ. Um, and so, so yeah, this is, this is a great book for in the midst of all this crazy imagery, reshaping our minds and our hearts to live as uh, citizens of the kingdom of God. So, um, we could spend a little bit of time as uh, digging deeper into some of the um, some of the details. There, there are some things in in chapter seventeen, especially, that are uh, are, are very complex, uh, especially as we get into let's see verses um, verses seven through um, through fourteen. There, there are some details there that are uh, very very difficult to um, to interpret. Uh, I will point out a couple of things uh, that, that are, I think, important to note. Um, in verse 8, we again see the, the mention of the book of life. Um, the dwellers on earth, and again, it's, a, it's a, like a, a technical term in Revelation for unbelievers. Uh, unbelievers whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. Um, those who are not written in the Lamb's book of life, they will, those are the ones who will marvel to see the beast. If you are in the Lamb's book of life, you will not, uh, you will not marvel at the beast. Um, this speaks to uh, God's election, his, his sovereign election of, of people for salvation, uh, people who are responsible for their sin, and yet God... Uh, has destined uh, and planned all of history. He is sovereign. 
um, and that is clear in the book of Revelation. There's uh, another uh, another statement in um, verse verse 14 that I really liked as well, and thinking about our own identity and uh, salvation. Those with the Lamb are called and chosen and faithful, and so it is God's sovereign grace, His um, His calling of us by the Spirit, uh, choosing us before the foundation of the world, uh, that that makes us faithful. Amen. Yeah. When you were talking about uh, when it talks about and dwellers on Yeah. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think there is a bit of a, a play on the you know him um, marveling and gawking at this this symbolic vision um, and the angel you know kind of rebuking him and saying well, you know, why do you marvel I'll I'll tell you what this this is about. Um, and and then those who um, marvel to see the beast again that same word and so there's that connection but they're marveling at the beast will be a full-on uh, submission and um, and adultery with the beast and so uh, so yeah I think there, there, there's a, there's obviously that connection there with the use of the uh, the same word um, and yet it's uh, it, it shows the the response of, uh, as we see the response of the angel, it's, yeah, I don't, obviously John is not, he's not a follower of the beast, right. but yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Really yeah, it's an interesting, interesting point. That points to how easily we can be misled without, yeah. without yeah. checking with scripture. Yeah, and so um, so again here, let's see. Um, again, there's some some details in in this passage about like the seven heads and the seven mountains and uh, the seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. There's an eighth uh, that are super complex and difficult. Um, it's interesting to think about. A lot of people tend to speculate that um, that it's uh, that this because this is probably referring referring to uh, Rome in some way that the seven um, the, the seven heads are were seven Roman um, rulers and you know you have all these different scholars and commentators trying to propose you know the first one is this person and the seventh one is this person and um, I, the bottom line is none of the none of the theories like work. <laughs> You have to always like, well, if you skip this one guy and he only ruled for one year and so he probably doesn't count and, well, let's start at this ruler and, and it, it just, it, it doesn't really work. Um, and I think that it's best to see it um, in line with the rest of the book, which is, has only been using numbers symbolically uh, and in, interpret it more symbolically and generally, um, seeing that, that John is... Uh, 
again, the connection to, to Daniel's visions, um, and that, that John is, is speaking of uh, all of the empires throughout history that have afflicted the people of God, um, the, the ungodly world systems and empires that still afflict them, uh, and the, the ones that will come and afflict them. And the bottom line, ultimately, is clear. However you identify the heads and the horns or whatever, the bottom line is they will be destroyed by God. They will be conquered by the Lamb. Um, and so one of, as one of the things I've been trying to stress throughout our whole study is, is seeing the bigger picture and focusing on the message being conveyed. Um, when we get to passages like this in Revelation or in uh, the rest of the Bible, um, usually there's a bunch of opinions on this. Uh, and it's not bad to try and come to a opinion or to have a viewpoint, um, but we can all agree on the, uh, the the main point that they will be conquered, and that these evil, wicked kingdoms uh, will be conquered by the Lamb one day. Uh, he is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Uh, that's attributed to the Lamb, and that's that's. Uh, God language. And so here's more uh, support for the deity of Christ. The Lamb is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. Uh, and so God is sovereign. He, he will bring these things to account. He will judge uh, wickedness and evil of these ungodly nations. Um, and so does that, is, that, is that at least helpful in seeing the bigger picture? I don't, did anyone maybe get, try and get bogged down some of those, the, the details? Um, there. Um, verse 15, and uh, I, I brought this out earlier, but uh, verse 15, um, here's one of the helpful parts uh, in Revelation where John actually interprets the symbolism for us. Um, and so the, the waters are uh, peoples and multitudes and nations and languages representing um, the, the authority that the prostitute has over them, um, that there is... Uh, control over, that Babylon and the ungodly world system has control over uh, over peoples. Um, and then it's interesting in these next couple of verses in 16 and 17 the, that evil ultimately it, it implodes on itself. Uh, the, 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 those who were uh, working together that they were uh, evil uh, you have the, the beast and the prostitute uh, eventually they uh, collapse in on themselves. And verse 17, um, well, verse 16, the ten horns, they will hate the prostitute. And the ten horns, I, I think it's best to see, as we saw earlier in the book of Revelation, them representing um, kingdoms, horns being symbolic for power, uh, and ten um, being a symbolic number. And the, so these kingdoms, and they, are, they, they hate the prostitute for God, verse 17, has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind, hand, handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Um, that's a crazy verse, that God has put it in their hearts to carry out his purpose. Um, talk about the sovereignty of God and that he is in control and orchestrating these things for his purposes, for his glory. Uh, ultimately, evil just implodes on itself. Uh, and then in chapter 18, it's a, a very interesting chapter. A lot of it is like poetic and, um, and like hymns and songs. Uh, and 
in, in chapter 18, we, we've kind of reached, again, the end of history as we have this final judgment on uh, on Babylon, on the wicked nations, and um, John backtracks a bit. He fills out in more detail what is going on, and um, instead of just leaving us with the announcement of judgment in chapter 17, he explains in more detail the reasons for the judgment and the horror it produces among unbelievers. He um, shakes up the kaleidoscope again and gives us uh, a different angle. And so uh, in chapter 18, we see um, the response of people to the destruction of Babylon, to the judgment of Babylon, um, and those who were in league with her. And this is where we see especially the, um, uh, the, the economic and political um, abuse and idolatry um, with the merchants and those uh, on the sea. Um, and th- this whole chapter is just ripe with imagery and with allusions from um, especially uh, Ezekiel 26 and 27, Jeremiah 50 and 51, um, several chapters in Isaiah. It's just so rich with all these judgments and with um, the connections to especially Tyre in Isaiah um, and Babylon and the, judge, the judgments of Babylon. Um, and we, we talked about this a little in verse 4 and the, the call to be separate and to, to come out of um, Babylon. God says that, that she will be, uh, be paid back. He has remembered her iniquities. Verse 7 in chapter 18 is uh, really the center of the sin of Babylon. She glorified herself. And, and that is the root of, of, of sin, is glorying yourself, uh, idolatry, uh, serving the, the, uh, the creation rather than the creator. Um, and she will be judged for this. And there's a weeping and wailing from the kings of the earth, those who, who um, prostituted, um, who, who committed sexual immorality with the prostitute. Uh, they, uh, alas, alas, they cry out over and over. Um, and their, some of their, their rule and their, um, their s- sinful uh, economic system, some of that is brought tumbling down as we see in verses 12 and 13, uh, their, the, the enjoyment they get from these, um, these different things are, are, is destroyed. And uh, as we get into chapter, uh, or sorry, not chapter, uh, verse 20, it switches from the response of unbelievers, the response of the wicked, to the response of the saints. Um, heaven and the saints and apostles and prophets are are called to rejoice for God has judged uh, Babylon. And there's some intense language of her being thrown down. She will be found no more. Uh, there will be no, no singing, no more light, no more, uh, no more merchants, all these things um, because of her, her, uh, her idolatry and her prostitution, her spiritual prostitution. Uh, and then getting into chapter 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. And we've encountered the great multitude in Revelation in chapter 7 and in chapter 14. 
uh, the great multitude are all the people of God, all the followers of the Lamb, and they cry out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And this is an interesting passage, and especially as we read this as Christians, and um, it, maybe it makes us uncomfortable or, or confused as there's this rejoicing in judgment. And we think about, well, what about uh, the, the calls to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us? And um, what about uh, evangelizing and sharing the gospel with people? And um, why are we, or, or is, it, is it wrong to celebrate this? And um, so a few things we can note. I think first and foremost, uh, the reasoning behind this celebration in verse 2, for or because his judgments are true and just. So we praise God because of his true um, judgments, his justice. Because he is true and just, he must punish wickedness. In fact, um, he would not be just if he didn't do so. And so we can rejoice in that. Um, another thing to note is, is that this rejoicing, it's, it's after the judgment has occurred. And so uh, following the judgment, we can rejoice in the fact that, um, that these things have, have been uh, avenged, that they have been, uh, that they have been set right. And uh, I think that that's a, another important point as we look at this, that uh, we can long for justice and for, um, for things to be set right. And we rejoice when they are, when God does carry out his, his justice. Um, and another thing that means is also the deliverance of the righteous, of those who Christ has, has purchased. Uh, he avenges the blood of his servants, and so that is one of the, um, the, the beauties of God's justice here, is that it is, uh, it, it is um, for the, the deliverance of his people as well. Um, I think when you're talking about biblical theology like that, yeah, and it's what we see with um, the Psalms and the imprecatory Psalms or the, the cursing Psalms that call for judgment. Um, the, the, the key is there, it's never about taking justice into your own hands or um, avenging yourself. Um, justice is mine, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine, leave it to me. Paul quotes in Romans 12. And, and so it's uh, patient endurance and waiting and longing for God's justice, and it is right to do so. It is right to, to want that. Yeah, Diana. Um, I have family members that are not saved, mm -hmm. and I feel real inadequate. I feel a real resistance when I go to bring up the subject, specifically my son. So in one way, you know, I long for God's judgment. In another way, I am terrified for God. Yeah. Yes. And I feel so inadequate. I feel like it, God is the one to draw us to himself. <clears throat> so he's the one. So I think um, not only looking at the sermon today, um, Bob you know, goes out and um, 
brings the gospel to everyone, but I think you know, an equal importance is uh, the power of prayer and mm -hmm. to lift those um, of us other ones because I can't do it myself. I can't get in a dialogue with my son or people that I love. My coworkers that aren't saved it grieves me when I see things on Facebook and stuff. They just they don't get it. And there's nothing else I can do but and hope that God will you know, show mercy on them and soften their hearts so they accept this truth. Yeah. So in a case like that how do you answer to the believers who are going to rejoice? When you know your dad, yeah. you know, my son. Yeah. We're rejoicing in God. Yeah. Rejoicing in God. His character is justice. I do feel a desperation. I do feel that this yeah. is... Yeah, this was, this was a helpful um, quote from um, a scholar, Tom Schreiner. And he... Uh, this is a helpful book. He always has like a response and reflection section after he talks about the text. And he says, um, the loud hallelujahs and praise from the people of God when Babylon is judged may seem strange and even anti-Christian. How should we apply this as Christians today? First, the praise comes after the judgment, not before. Why does this matter? Because as long as unbelievers are alive, we are to long and pray for their salvation. But on the last day, after history has concluded, we will see that the judgment of God is right and true and just. None of us will question whether those who are in hell should be there, for then we will see the perfect rightness and goodness of God's judgment. Second, we should underscore that God's judgment is just and righteous. The punishment of Babylon is akin to the destruction of the Nazis under Hitler. When an evil empire that has spread terror and torment is destroyed, people rejoice. And third, the judgment of the wicked means the deliverance of the righteous. Saints praise God at the destruction of Babylon because her demise means relief and freedom for the saints. And so I think that first part especially was, um, was good, that it's, um, we, we long for and we, we pray for their salvation. And, um, and, and, and just as the scripture says that God does not delight in um, the death of the wicked and that he desires uh, uh, salvation, um, his justice and his judgment are right. And so there will come a time, especially as we behold him face to face, when we will understand that. Uh, and there will be, you know, I don't know how much we will, um, how hard it will be if with people like our, our sons and daughters or our parents or our co-workers. Um, but yet, we will have a right perspective and understand fully um, how these things can be so, how God can be just in this. Um, and so we, uh, we, we pray earnestly, we are faithful in proclaiming the gospel and, in, um, and being salt in this, uh, salt and light in this world. Um, and when the end comes, we will, we will uh, see things clearly. But you know, um, I think the sad part is, once you're a Christian, you realize that everyone is not going to be for God, even your own family members. So you, you do have to keep praying and, and hope that one day they will see the light and come to the fold. Um, but it's biblical. Everyone is not for God. And it just happens to be seen for God. It's hard. It is hard. It's hard. <clears throat> Yeah. As much as I'm 
much as myself not telling them so I want them to be lost, I can only do what God allows me to do, and that's to tell them about God, and then the rest is up to God. So you can only share the good news and they receive it or they don't. Um, and you'd be surprised. Um, you may go through your whole life praying for that one person in your family, and boom, one day you'd be like, hey, they, 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 they got it, they get it, they're, they're with the Lord, and that's like, I guess it's that praise after the judgment kind of thing for us. It's like, yes, finally, you know, but all we can do really is pray and, and, and eat. I think in the same way that I know I don't um, have faith eyes to see the kingdom that, that's happening, that is now, that is real. In the same way, I think it's comforting to know that like, we don't see all of those things even as they truly are either. And it's not only comforting, but it's really important because it shapes our mind. Like We have to realize that our, the way we, I think about things is not the right way necessarily. <laughs> I mean, it's not the way, it's not, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna see things as they truly are when I do. And that's only going to be in Jesus and in the, at that time. And so there's, you know, there's so many things we just don't see and we have to keep trusting this. And as we get to uh, these last few verses, um, again, there's the, voice of a great multitude, the war of many, uh, like the roar of many waters, uh, sound of mighty peals of thunder, and it's uh, praising God, hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. It was granted her to clothe herself. She didn't clothe herself. It was, she was granted. It was uh, God clothed her. And, the, and again, as we, we saw, it's the followers of the Lamb are the, the chosen and the faithful and the called. Um, even their, their clothing, being clothed with the righteous deeds, uh, it's a result of, of God's work in their lives. And uh, there's this beautiful picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we will... Uh, expand on this further in um, in chapter 21 in this beautiful beautiful passage about the, the New Jerusalem and um, even today uh, this morning um, Greg read from Isaiah 25 a passage about uh, the, the the marriage supper something that is um, is is being alluded to here and so uh, the angel then says write this blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. and uh, These are the true words of God. That's, that's just a, I mean, it's, it's such a small phrase, but it's also significant as we read of these realities, as I was talking about earlier with the imagination, we read of these things, and it's so hard for us to, to actually believe that these are real, and we're assured these are the true words of God. Um, and so we will talk a lot more about um, about that when we get to chapter 21 and the, the, the wedding um, supper of the Lamb uh, and all its beauty. So, does anyone else have any questions or reflection or, or comments from this, uh, this section? I just have a reflection from you know, verse 
And that's in comparison to you know, the other symbolic n- numbers in Revelation, like the 1260 days or the three and a half years and then one hour. That's judgment. Yeah. Well, that's what it says about the 10 days. They'll have authority for like an hour. Yeah. 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 Anything else? Great. Well, uh, next week we will be focusing in on a little bit of a smaller section, but it's one that I mentioned last week. There's going to be some important things to talk about, especially with the, the millennium. Um, and so uh, it's Revelation 19:11 through 2015. Uh, Make sure you read it. Um, and we'll be talking about um, some of the different views on, uh, especially in chapter 20, the thousand years and um, when that happens and everything. So um, I'm looking forward to, to that. Uh, thank you all for, for being here. It's always, always great to study God's Word together. Thank you, man.